Welcome to Radio Survivor. Our guest on the podcast today is Anna Fritz. I mean, I was really interested in thinking, I was making radio to think about radio. I was really fascinated by that. Anna Frizz is assistant professor of film and digital media at the University of California at Santa Cruz and joins us today to talk about her practice of making radio art and teaching the history. We started off today's podcast portion before the radio program begins in about 10 minutes uh, talking about some of our forays into making sound art. And Paul Reese Mandel of Radio Survivor had posted anonymously on the web uh, some of his sound art. He was talking about it casually with his friends. And before we knew it, we were having a conversation that was worth sharing and worth recording. So that is why I'm telling you that what you're about to hear is us uh, having a conversation about creating creating our own work and, and how we went about it. And that leads in to today's interview with Anna Frizz. Paul, too. Paul's been making art. We were talking about how Judy Dunaway was like, um, I'm just making anonymous art. Oh, right? yeah. Jennifer probably didn't art. see my uh, my latest creation. Yeah. No. Freaked me out. I was worried about me. It's <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 It's all it's, – it's a, it's a song that's entirely random. So the beats are literally random. That's beautiful. It's how all did you generate? Key. Paul's going to tell us – Anna, Paul's telling us about his sound art that's anonymous to, so to I begin used, the, I, I actually used an MP3 player and right. just loaded up equivalent-like samples. And so it's, it's, the, it's the first – it's samples of the drums from the first two bars of When the Levee Breaks because those are like iconic. But if you chop them up and take them out of context, it, it's really weird. Yeah. And also the MP3 player doesn't do everything exactly right. Like, you'd think it would play everything, it would be all in time, but it actually loses and gains time. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, Neat. I guess that's just an artifact. What MP3 player are you using for this, uh, for this work? Jam. <laughs> like and then, and so then you edited your video just randomly? The video um, wasn't linked to the... Yeah, yeah, more or less, yes, correct. Okay. The video wasn't linked. Um, and, then, and then I played in samples of a Mellotron, and then I picked okay. a key so oh. things would be sort of semi-consonant. We can do non... I figured... <laughs> but... Then, most importantly, and most distractingly, I chopped up uh, Alex Jones ranting about QAnon. Oh, and then also put that in to play randomly. Alex Jones hates QAnon. Yeah, so if there's ever been something that you could be <laughs> amused it, it, by, it's that Alex Jones hates QAnon. It's short because there's you know there's everyone's got a limit on what they can take from that and uh i'm not trying to make metal machine music mine so. is none I, w- I watched it and i was upset i watched i watched it and i, I was can't upset. wait the I thing can't. i know about when the levee breaks is that uh when i was um living in montreal i did a workshop this like almost 20 years ago at the hotel to tango which is sort of famous studio there run by some of the godspeed people and one of the things we did was, like, we replicated the recording of the drum kit in on When the Levee Breaks in order to talk about boundary miking. And, oh, um, fun. Wow. And we totally did it. Wow. We completely reproduced the, the, the sound of When the Levee with Breaks. That, with that, like, natural slap back going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was about how things are miked. And also, it's like, because it's only three mics, and then, of course, they were in a stairwell. So we used the stairwell of the building, and we had, you know, there was like a group of 10 of us. And so one person was like a drummer, so they just stuck the kit down in the stairwell. And 
yeah, you, it's like one one mic on the on the kick, one overhead, and then one boundary mic like way up the stairwell. Boundary mic. What is a boundary mic? What is a boundary mic? Well, here, let me move over to my microphone <laughs> so I can make sure that I'm in the right spot. Uh, boundary miking is uh, the practice of, of miking the edges of where you might perceive sound. So okay. normally, if you're recording something, you, you, you have the practice of sticking the microphone close to someone's face if they're speaking or close to an object that's making a sound or pointing in the direction of the thing that is making the sound that you want to capture. Right. But if you're boundary miking, it means you point your microphone like right next to the wall or right next to a reflective surface so that you catch the immediate resonance of a reflection of the sound off of a, off of a surface of some kind. And then you usually mix that with the, with the microphone that's more traditional. And then you have, right. you, have a, you have a decision. Yes, in terms of like how you manage that mix. And so what it can give you is this sense of roominess or distance. It can also give you this kind of broadness to the sound. It can also focus the sound in strange ways. Like if you were in a space that was full of glass, for instance, like you could make things seem more sharp. Like you could just change the, the, the disposition of the sound by boundary miking and, and where you put it in the mix. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And there's so many implications in my mind right now because of how, um, how many recordings are just being made in bedrooms. Like, you know, how I, I, I just watched a wonderful sound, uh, musical performance, you know, like every, everything that I've seen that I've liked this year has been, uh, more often than not, um, a performance of by a musician in their bedroom. And it's like, so there's, there's no, um, there's not a lot of there. You can't, I haven't seen any boundary miking in people's bedrooms because we're, we're missing spaces is the point, the weird point that I'm trying to make and then be quiet like the there 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 are so many spaces to record sound in other than uh this one intimate thing that we've all accepted as the main way for sound to sound right well this is also the the aspect i I think of recording at home or being in the home is that there's an expectation of that intimacy and that kind of lack of uh echoic space or or active space but recording at home also includes all of these extras like the washing machine and the water running in the pipes and your neighbor and like the kitty cat the leaf blowing and whatever you know like there's a lot of other interstitial sound that's kind of interesting and or annoying depending on what you're working on but the expectation that the sounds you make will have no relationship to other spaces is always false and this is what i really love about radio is that you always assume that whatever sound you're making for radio is going to have a relationship to unknown, unstable spaces. And we can't possibly know what those are, but we can imagine all of the possible variations that they could be. And um, and so uh, making a choice about how that listening will take place is the hallmark of how you compose for radio instead of composing for, uh, you know, like a CD player, for instance, or or just like a release on the internet. When when you're talking about that, it makes me think about the station where I volunteer. We play a lot of experimental music, and and people joke that the number of times they've been driving in a car and and they're trying to figure out if they're hearing a problem with their car. Is that my car or is that KFJC? You know, because there's a noise, and that's happened to me where I've turned down the radio because I'm trying to figure out if what I'm hearing on the radio is in the other ambient space around me. Is it a siren? outside is it an issue with the car or is it the music that i'm hearing from my speakers 
Yeah, it's great because it throws you back into a relationship with the space you're in. It's like, oh, what's here and what's what's coming from afar and what's coming from closer. Like, I, I think a lot of times we're not we're not listening in a very um, you know in, in a very focused way because you're just trying to get through your life. You're having your thoughts. You're making your dinner. You're driving your car to some place where you have a you know something that's going to happen and maybe that's what's on your mind and. That moment when you're like, I can't really tell where the sound is coming from that thrusts you back in your environment, even briefly, is very interesting. Why is that different from if, if you were listening to a CD in your car or, or, or an MP3 or something? What, what is the difference between that radio transmission or something, your own music that you've, that you've chosen to listen to? Well, because you chose it. So you know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And you're making a decision about being committed to testing out that amount of time. Perhaps you've listened to it more than once. But when it comes off over the radio, you're you're trusting the curation and, and the, the choices of somebody else. And you actually have no idea what's coming next. Right. Even though, you know, I have like a My Bloody Valentine record that still occasionally convinces me my stereo is broken. <laughs> because because the speed modulations are you know are, are not with the tempo and things like this or it makes you know and and so while that's not quite the environment it's also like did my elect is my electricity weird did my turntable break <laughs> what is going my, on my favorite albums of of the 90s had labels on them that were like y- your stereo is not broken <laughs> we did this on purpose. I, I'm, I, I have one out al- one album by the Boredoms, a Japanese noise rock band that is uh, they used skipping CD samples in their composition, and so you have a CD with the with the, with the sound of a skipping CD being. But you habituated it. to it, right? Like I finally know maybe my right, maybe isn't broken. Yeah. But, but those are always the things as a radio DJ. Even when you're playing experimental material like that, when things like that happen, your heart stops a little bit, or if yeah. there's a very long pause in a piece, you might think that there's something wrong with the equipment. So it's interesting that you can have that experience as both a listener and as the person controlling the equipment. <laughs> I mean, I think also some composers and, and artists really work with that, like you know, recording something that is so minimal, so kind of borderline. I'm thinking about Steve Roden here, that it's like you you have to really zoom in in order to try to hear it. You have to really turn up the volume. You have to listen to it multiple times to understand what composes all of the layers. And uh, and that kind of listening is never never going to be the, the dominant force in the room. It's always going to be a kind of undertone in the room. That's what That's how it's meant to be understood. Whereas I also enjoy super loud, big things, you know, and, and I also think that, you know, radio stations have historically underestimated what the listener is willing to engage with. Um, you know, the Internet's a really good example. People will listen to all kinds of crazy stuff and people will listen to it, you know, 800 times, 800 percent slower than it's supposed to be for hours and hours and hours at a time. And, and that's not an avant garde practice anymore. That's just like people on the Internet doing stuff. So I feel like uh, that there was a moment at least from the 90s into maybe sort of the 2010s where it was really hard to to make experimental radio and expect it to be broadcast any place that would pay you even a dime in North America because there was such an aversion to risk for a listener it was like no we want the didactic explanation of how you're going to feel when you listen to this thing we want explanations at the top and the bottom there can't possibly be any unknown space in this radio. And 
and and independent radio is the place where those things were still happening, where you could listen to something weird overnight that had no explanation or someone, you know, put it on and then never told you what it was because then the programmer left and the next programmer came and they didn't know either. So, you know, I, those those moments of real surprise were were kind of relegated to independent radio. And I'm I'm hoping that they're going to sneak back into the mainstream a tiny bit because, you know, more avant-garde com- composing and uh, a lot of uh, musical variety has really hit like, television scoring and film scoring. And I feel like the, the kind of like hyper real pop, sort of hyper synth pop, I guess I should say, not really hyper real. It's like hyper unreal uh, that folks are listening to is just like a total mashup of every genre possible. So, you know, people's ears are definitely more attuned to things that are experimental now than they used to be. But uh but that was not being reflected in radio listening like as as a broad as a broad practice in North America for decades now and and you see that shift happening you, you do you perceive now i mean you sort of put a a, a time to marker like 20 uh, 2010 um and you've just cited a few a few reasons why you think it sounds like you're perceiving the popular ear is adjusting to to to, sa- to to novel sounds or or things that were once considered avant-garde, which seems to some extent to be a process that is always ongoing. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree for sure. I mean, I think I, I I'm not going to like I won't I, I I won't claim like a historical moment exactly as being the fulcrum for things shifting, but I think it also has to do with just generally. Uh, you know, a sophistication entering into, let's say, video game uh, sound design and um, and just a different, uh, uh, I guess, funding model being applied to television and filmmaking so that there is more possibility for something that's kind of uh, would be considered challenging or unusual to, to become more popular. So, you know, here I'm thinking of something like the, the soundtrack to the Chernobyl television series. Oh, yeah, good point. You know, which is this incredible piece of industrial music. You know, it's fantastic. It's kind of hard. It's hard to imagine that kind of a work uh, uh, getting such mainstream approval even just 15 years ago in a way. Um, But on the other hand, it's it's so it's it's exactly the right concept for that film. You know, that it's it's a it's a soundtrack that's entirely composed from industrial field recordings from a defunct uh, uh, a nuclear reactor site. And, um, you know, it's been it's all that material has been treated very musically using software that also enables that to happen. Um, but there's almost no there's basically almost no instruments whatsoever in the soundtrack. There's just a human voice and then field recordings that have all been treated in ways that are very extremely musical and also just as you say, sort of massive and industrial and kind of terrifying in the best way possible. Like, it's, it's an amazing soundtrack. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein. And I'm Paul Reismandel. And on the show today, we are going to focus on transmission art and radio art, looking at both its history and some contemporary examples. Our guest, Anna Frizz, is a sound and radio artist and scholar and is assistant professor of film and digital media at University of California, Santa Cruz. Thanks for joining us on Radio Survivor. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So on the show last week, we talked to Judy Dunaway about 
the history of sound art. And so it's kind of exciting to have you on this week to talk, to broaden this discussion and talk more about transmission art. And, and in our conversation with Judy, uh, we talked a bit about definitions and how definitions can be a bit tricky. Um, but I maybe wanted to start in that same space with you and, and ask how you define radio art and transmission art and radiophonic art um, to help us just add some context to this discussion. Sure. I, I feel like, you know, much like the sound art world, you know, that there, there are different ideas of where, uh, where a definition might come from or, or what a definition might entail. So, for instance, radio art, if we think of it from maybe more the European perspective, is, is certainly radio, um, uh, radio practices um, and programming that are that are made to experiment with the conditions of radio, but but are are kind of like art for radio. So straddling the worlds of experimental music, radio plays, um, uh, performance poetry, like sort of coming from those areas, field recording, sound recording, and kind of composing in all of those a variety of ways, with the knowledge that broadcast reaches an audience in a different way than at the let's say over the last hundred years than than a recorded musical medium or than a live performance where you can see the audience uh, so radio art is definitely uh, uh, meant to be in that sort of in between space of radio production uh, where where you might draw on things that are that are fictional or you might draw on things that are are real you might create something that is uh, an impression you might work with textures you might be uh, there might be voice there might be no voices at all. There might be instruments, there might be no instruments. But definitely that, that world of radio art has a certain set of aesthetics associated with it, which very much are sort of tied into what we could call like Western art music. So a kind of avant-garde uh, electroacoustic practice, uh, you know, sort of early electronic music ideas, uh, and so forth. If I think of radio art from the North American perspective, and this these are, the, keep in mind, this is just my opinion here, like... I, I'm, I'm not sort of subscribing exactly to one thing or another, but um, my my background is coming from community radio in Canada in the 90s, in the early 90s. And so for me, when I understood that radio art was even a possibility or a category, my relationship to it came from uh, groups like Negative Land. It was like cut up tape and and using radio that was specifically referring somehow to the platform of radio that was expressly about the relationship between the studio and the listener and all of these unstable, interesting uh, ambiguities that exist there. So so for me, I, I came from it much more from like a noise, media sampling, uh, uh, a spoken word to some degree, maybe like electronic noise, later field recording kind of approach, but I would say it was just a little more like dirty and lo-fi and kind of punk rock. And when I first uh, moved from producing only in, a, in an independent uh, Canadian radio context to you know making my first piece on Austrian national radio, I was just sort of shocked in a way to be in the radio studio in Vienna that was, you know, at that point, I guess was 70 years old and you know, these ancient reel-to-reel players and technicians who would sort of do my bidding and 
I was a bit like, this isn't how I make work. <laughs> like, I have cart machines and tape loops, and I just sort of sit in the production studio and kind of cue it all up and then perform the damn thing because I didn't have a computer at that point. I didn't have any knowledge of computer editing. I made everything on tape. So for me, radio art was really uh, enabled by this this uh, volunteer-driven, community-based, independent context. And uh, and those are the aesthetics that I sort of began with. And I would say they still affect me very much. What station now, were you working at? I was at CITR in Vancouver. CITR in Vancouver. Which is uh, made famous by Nardwar the Human Serviette being the... Uh, uh, the, the CITR mascot and probably long longest running on-air personality there. Known for his interviews of, of music personalities, correct? That's right. Known for his uh, insistent nerdery and, and very detailed interviews, very insistent and detailed interviews, and his plaid tam. So. <laughs> How do you, I, I know I'm, I'm taking us a little bit off on a tangent here, but I think, I think it'll help inform the 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 overall subject how do you make the jump from working in a community radio studio at, at citr in vancouver to then being invited to to state radio in austria well it's a strange life <laughs> i mean in vancouver i had the great uh i had the great good fortune of being in a community of uh of artists and makers and i at that time was still just I guess, kind of coming out in a way as an artist, I, I had felt that because I hadn't been to music school or art school, that being an artist was something that I couldn't really do. I was sort of in, uh, I was doing street theater. I learned to play an accordion so I could be in a clown band. You know, I, I was into performance art. And, Me too. Uh, and so all of that uh, uh, somehow fit well with also radio. There's a performativity to it, but there's also a remix aspect. There's... There's a way that you're asking questions, but you're also making things, and those those really appeal to me a lot. And um, and so uh, I I became the program director at CITR, and I I was that which meant I was also the person who was training everybody on our our, our equipment. And so at a certain point, I just started realizing like, oh, I could make really a lot of interesting sounds here. I don't need to just play the sounds of other people. I could be making the sounds, and so. You know, we went from making like ridiculous long tape loops to trying to figure out how to harness the power of these little cart machines. And for people who are not aware of this this arcane piece of radio equipment, it's like a cartridge in the same way that an eight track cartridge functions. It's a sort of endlessly looping piece of tape that's in a little plastic cartridge. And so once you've played whatever's on that loop, it auto cues back to the beginning. Right, so it's so very it's, con- it's a it's very convenient. It's a piece of professional radio gear from the eighties and nineties that, you know, plays a it it plays it plays like a a, a commercial one, or yeah a, PSA a commercial or a is promo. what it's intended to do that's and it loops so that you never have to rewind it and yeah. that's why it would exist in that form but then it has so much potential for art artists have uh, have unlocked a lot of ideas be just because of how this one piece of uh, professional radio gear was designed that's right and I mean at that time as I say I didn't. I didn't really know how to use a synthesizer or a sampler or anything like that. So I was just figuring out like all the equipment at CITR that I could get to loop. So whether that was a, right. an open, like a Revox reel-to-reel machine, whether it was cart machines. Once we had mini disc, I figured out that certain mini discs had seamless loops and others did not. So you had to figure out which one, which one that was and make sure you had the right one. 
but the the holy grail of looping was a really big deal at that point i remember um it is a golden age of looping these days And so uh, also in Vancouver, there's a very strong history of artist-run culture. And so what that means are um, media arts centers that are started by artists, run by artists, that are funded by public funds mostly, you know, from uh, the Canada Council for the Arts or other other funding um, that are available either provincially or federally. And what that enables is just a really uh, robust scene for for artists, especially at that time when it was really expensive to have your own computer or have your own camera or have your own equipment, your own microphones. So you could be part of an artist-run center and there would be the possibility to borrow or rent things and and to take workshops and learn how to do things. And, um, And so the Western Front in Vancouver, which is a one of Canada's longest-running artist-run centers, uh, and also a place of, of uh, famous, uh, at least, uh, well, I would say internationally, but certainly in Canada, for all of its uh, video experimentation in the early days of video. Uh, the Western Front was a really important place for me to realize that there was this bridge from the radio station into worlds that included sound art and media art. Um, and that's also where I learned uh, how to build a very small uh, two-watt FM radio transmitter based on the Tetsuo Kagawa uh, plans. I'm happy to talk more about him in a little while. Japanese media theorist who uh, kind of transformed a lot of artists' lives with these very small transmitter plans. Um, and uh, and it helped me to realize that the radio that I was making didn't only need to be tied to a broadcast studio it could really be pulled out of the studio in a sculptural way, in a performative way, in a sort of artist social practice kind of way. And, uh, and from there, I really started making work um, really full time as an artist. And, and because of the Western Front having a long standing connection to Austria, uh, because of also their involvement with Fluxus in the 70s and 80s, um, and their connections to some of the people who had put together the first uh, radio art program on national public radio in, in Austria that was really dedicated to radio art and not, uh, you know, radio plays or Hörspiel, uh, as is maybe more common in other German uh, sort of traditions. Um, so having that connection gave me this pipeline to to become part of what was going on in Vienna um, at Kunstradio, which is this... Uh, Kunst Radio, literally meaning art radio, this program on the National Public Radio in Austria. Um, so yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was a really great example where like an artist-run culture and a community radio station were able to connect with other places internationally that had a similar sort of independent interest, but were housed within a larger institution. And I mean, that's a great place to explain more about what the studio was like and how in Austria... So I, I take it they had a much longer tradition of of radio art, and so how did the studio? How how what was the difference between that and your DIY scene back at home? Well, also because you know uh, CITR radio, uh, which is in the meantime also spiffed up its studio incredibly. They have a gorgeous studio at, at the UBC campus now in Vancouver. So shout out to that. Um, but you know, in the old days, it was uh, it was it was still a really well designed studio for for the budget we had. Like we made a lot of uh, we made a lot out of nothing. Let's just say, but it was a bit like being in a submarine. You know, it's like there's no windows, there's stickers all over the walls. There's, somebody had cut out all of these old editions of Bloom County comics and stuck them like wallpaper on all of the hallways. So, you know, it was just kind of scrappy, and you know, we have this. 
uh, uh, these these production studios uh, that are modeled precisely on the same equipment that's in the on-air studio, which is, of course, meant to be convenient for training and for, for volunteers to sort of in- increase their, their ability and their skills. But it also means that you have all of these machines that are that are identical, so you can do really interesting things with like three Revox reel to reels and running the tape across three different machines and doing you know doing these sort of tape tricks that are um, in many ways the um, uh, the bread and butter of of early electronic music also. Um, also here in the U.S., like in the '60s, if we think of different organizations, like working with tape is a is a real moment for many artists in terms of understanding the ability to actually materially affect uh, the sound by changing its material uh, circumstances, literally cutting and splicing or degrading tape in different ways, or changing the envelope of the sound based on how you've threaded it on the machine and what you do with it. The speed. Um, and, the speed, yes, the, exactly. The, the direction, you can go backwards. Mm-hmm. Yep. Whereas in Austria, uh, it was in just the regular national radio station in Vienna. So it's it was built in the 1930s. It's this Art Deco building. You know, they're doing uh, all of the regular radio shows. Uh, it, on the national public radio, they have a few different channels. So the Kunstradio program is housed on the cultural channel. But that still means that, you know, people are doing national radio. So they're recording symphonies they they do radio plays where they have a whole studio that just has all of the different surfaces you might want for the sound of someone running up and down stairs or the sound of someone pouring water in a kitchen or you know the sound of tiles or doors opening and closing like a studio that's just full of all of that plus like little homemade interesting things that uh, simulate different kinds of doorbells or all of the stuff you might need to make a live radio play um it's a fantastic space to work in. Uh, unfortunately, they're going to be moving that whole studio to somewhere in the suburbs of Vienna and, and potentially turning that ancient great building into condos, I understand, which is a bit of a horror. But um, but there's even in the in the uh, uh, in the ORF studios there in Vienna, there was a, a, a reverb tank in the basement, which is to say like a concrete empty room that had audio lines running down and speakers there so you could play your sound into this room and then record it again um, uh, and send it back up to a studio. You'd, you'd, so, you'd have a microphone recording the other side of the room to hear all of that reverb. I heard that that's right. um, there's a wonderful video on the internet where it turns out Motown had uh, something similar but smaller up in its attic. They had a, mm-hmm. a metal, a, a, as long as the house could, you know, they built the metal box the length of the home recording studio that they were using to make all these Motown records. And that's the Motown reverb sound. It's just a metal box in the attic with a speaker on one side of the box and a microphone on the other that they could send, send the signal up to. That's right. So this was the same idea. It just, it was like a room in the, the basement. Kunst so. radio reverb room sound. <laughs> yeah. There's probably a, a VST plug-in somewhere. Yeah. So it was really fantastic to be there. I mean, I, I definitely, uh, uh, it really changed my practice 100% to be in that situation. Um, because I, all of a sudden, I also understood that I could make these longer pieces, that they could have this life across a number of different kinds of platforms. Um, but but I would also say that I really wanted to hang on to a, a more unpolished sound and um and you know the kind of work that I make is I would say it's not terribly inaccessible, but it is it is not the usual thing. 
what then got you interested in understand going from practice to understanding more of the the history and and the circumstance of transmission art and radio art? Well, and, and I guess before I answer that question, I should also say that then transmission art, as opposed to radio art, is when artists are working across the electromagnetic spectrum, like thinking of um, waves, like electromagnetic waves as artistic material. And that could include AM or FM, that might include frequencies like UHF and VHF, it might include VLF and EHF, uh, ELF frequencies, it could include microwave, could include visible light, might include, you know... Uh, uh, radio t- t- radio astronomy and so on. So there's there's a huge broad range there, and those artists are not generally making things for broadcast, although that's kind of a subsection you might say. Um, but transmission art tends to be more installation based and and sort of definitely more on the conceptual art side meets this this kind of material entanglement with waves. So I guess for me, um, I had studied. Uh, I'd studied some strange things as an undergraduate in in a in a um, in in university in a very uneven way. Um, you know, I kind of started and stopped university and sort of dropped out for periods of time and then reappeared again. Uh, so I had studied comparative religion. I studied f- uh, feminist studies and media studies in particular, and international literature. So I feel like I already had this um, this interest in in media as as a broad category um, and not as a visual category. I wasn't particularly interested in thinking about that. Um, and then I, it was actually my, uh, my experience in the studio and then the reading that I started doing around radio history that made me think, there's actually kind of a hole here. Like There's not very much writing about experimental radio. There's actually a lot of space here to have new thoughts. Like this is, you know, radio in a way, especially by the late 90s, radio was relieved of the pressure of being cutting edge. There's nothing cutting edge about it at that moment. It was determinately trailing edge. So you could just, you could say, well, what's possible now that you don't have to be cool? Like what could radio be doing if it wasn't just like, you know, telling you the the news and the information of the day, the weather, the traffic report? And in the meantime, radio had also uh, just started automating enough that like there weren't as many late late night DJs. It was more common for stations, even even independent stations, to start putting on pre recorded material or just repeating shows from the day or putting on the BBC World Service or whatever overnight. And I really was insulted by this. So it's like the nighttime listening is the most interesting, mm-hmm. and the radio sh- the radio day the 24-hour radio day should reflect the actual circumstances of the place in which it broadcasts which is that it's dark and it's nighttime at 2 a.m i don't want to hear the morning show from britain then like i would like to hear something else that that reflects on that mood and that sort of disposition of the space so uh so kind of everything i made when i started my master's which was in media studies was was for overnight radio i was really focused on on making things for overnight radio and, and that's where cer- I sort of—I swear—I sort of hatched this idea of the little people inside the radio. Like, what do they do when you turn off the radio? <laughs> it had a lot to do with this idea of like, what else could be going on overnight when you aren't listening? So. Yeah, tell us about those overnight pieces and and the little people in the radio. So uh, uh, I had done some—I ha- I had done some overnight radio in, in Vancouver at CITR. Part of being the the program director is that when you're when your programmers flunk out. <laughs> 
<laughs> Someone has to go in and put things on the air. And the program director is like the final line of, of, uh, of holding up the license. So I would get a call at 11 p.m. and somebody would say, "There's you know, the next programmer isn't coming in and I have to leave. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm on my way. So... Um, so I, I got used to doing these like long form overnight shows sometimes and, and kind of staging takeovers as part of projects where, you know, this station has actually been taken over by other people. Now it's being, now it's a different station. It has different call letters. It is. And, and being interested in that kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, a kind of radio theater, um, that's for radio. Like we're in a radio station that's been taken over by radio pirates, you know, it's a really easy thing to do when you're in a radio station already. So it reminds me of um, uh, of Negative Land that you referred to because Don Joyce's radio show on KPFA. Um, I just discovered in the archives that they had a thing that they would do. I think in the late '80s, where they would pretend that KPFA overnight had turned into a new pop radio superstation, and th- so they so this overnight show on on KPFA, a listener sponsored <laughs> nonprofit anti war. Uh, you know, Berkeley radio station overnight, their radio show would pretend that it had become one of California's new mega hit stations, and then oh, they would no. slowly s- subvert that, the expectations of, and of what course, you're put, listening to. And put on the complaint calls, right? Patch yeah. in the calls that people Perfect. were making, complaining about it, um, and, and, you know, and subverting that, indeed. And I think what's interesting to me, as you talk about this, Anna, is that, you know, these are the sorts of things that if you find people who've done college radio and community radio, especially overnight, if they've not done it themselves, you'll hear the stories of their co-broadcasters. You know, I have a friend who has been doing overnight radio at uh, in central Illinois, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, for 40 years. And Did we it not didn't interview start out that him way. on Radio Survivor? I interviewed in him on, on Radio Survivor. Yeah. yeah, his name is Ed Hadley, right? And, and indeed does these sorts of things, uh, you know, and sometimes it's more straightforward and sometimes it's less straightforward and invites people on, um, you know, and at some point inspired a little bit, of course, by like Negative Land, as you mentioned, because I think because they also recorded and released records that gave them a, it allowed other people to hear it. You didn't have to just be in Berkeley any longer. Um, And, but also to some extent inspired by his own impulses, his own artistic impulses, not necessarily steeped in the fact that, um, or aware, you know, in 1982 in the prairies of central Illinois, that maybe there's somebody else in Vancouver, you know, or in Toronto or in, in Madison doing something similar like that. And, and that it actually maybe connects to a tradition, even, you know, that, that uh, of folks who, who have done, who are doing radio arts, uh, in the past and possibly more self-consciously. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, you yeah, know. I, I do think self-conscious radio is what that's about. I mean, I was really interested in thinking, I was making radio to think about radio. I was mm-hmm. really fascinated by that. And I also, I feel like a lot of the things that I have discovered through working with radio are not unique entirely to radio. Like there is a materiality to all sorts of media. I just happen to explore that through radio, which which has this... Uh, 
tendency to be described as ephemeral, you know, where voices are described as being disembodied. And I fully, dis- I fully disagree with those things. I mean, radio has a ton of, of materiality. It has a ton of infrastructure. My voice is fully embodied here, folks. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just hearing it through a very complicated collaboration with a lot of equipment, which is taking up a lot of the space of my physical self, since I'm not there with you um, in person right now. But also, you know, my voice comes from spending 50 years in this body, in this culture at this time. There's a reason why it sounds this way. That's, that's really physical. That is not ghostly. That is not ephemeral. That is not um, disembodied at all. You know, my experience of living in this world and in in, in presenting in the way that I do at this time as a strategy for expressing myself and for managing what it's like to be in this culture produces this voice now. So... And that includes also being on the radio. Like my voice changed because I heard myself in my headphones all the time. Yes, yes. And I, although you, you mentioned ephemerality, and one of the things that I enjoyed about when I was doing late night radio, um, which is difficult these days in, in the digital world where everything is sort of temporarily stored, if not permanently stored, was the fact that I could do something that one night at 1 a.m. And if I didn't record it, I had a pretty good chance it was lost. Confident like that was, you could get away in the dark. Well, right. There's a, there's a sort of like you could push the boundaries and possibly get away with something or, or you know, or, you know, do something that, that if it were done at 2 o'clock in the afternoon would, would raise more hackles or might, you know, you might also be just freeforming and something slips out you're like oh i wouldn't say that again or i wouldn't let that sample out again or i wouldn't do that again but it happened at 1 a.m you didn't record it no one's recording it it's likely down just lost and that there's both you know sort of the cya part of that but also the a bit of the magic like there is in live performance which it effectively is just live performance in, in a different manner that now it's we, we we're not burdened by it having to be captured either no, that's a good point. And I mean, uh, I guess what I was referring to was thinking about the fact that um, in order to to broadcast a voice, like there's all of this sort of material chain of, right. of cause and effect that needs to take place that that leaves traces in, in ways. But those are also kind of about, uh, you know, electrons moving around. And um, in the old days, I guess you could say like, uh, uh, you, you know, magnetic orientation of filings on a on a tape and such like um, but you're absolutely right that the, the the thing I do love about broadcast radio and especially about live radio is that there maybe there isn't a recording. Actually, most of what I did in the in the 1990s is there's no there's no recording of it. There's there's my memory of it. There's other people's memory of it, but we don't we don't have recordings of most of it. Yeah, and there's a power there's a power in that that the youth have rediscovered. Where now you know in the in the second decade of the 21st century, one of the one of the, the selling points of some of these. Uh, uh, media apps is that you're that you're the work is forgotten it's temporary it's only around mm. for 24 hours and then the stream w- goes down yeah i was just thinking that with snapchat and yeah. and with people who post things saying i might delete this later so, yeah but, we, you know there's some sort of freedom in it, having something be temporary uh, this is radio <laughs> survivor and we're speaking today with anna fritz assistant professor of film and digital media at the university of santa cruz in california we're talking about sound art and transmission arts. My name is Eric Klein. With me is Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits. And actually, oh, so, sorry, Jennifer. I mean, I wanted to kind of follow up on that a little bit, and then uh, maybe you can take that. 
then the ephemerality is a challenge then too if you're if you're going to try to construct histories and documents of of radio art you know from the beginning because you have to rely more on accounts such as they are rather than the 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 broadcast themselves that's right it's an oral history uh of of radio experimentation often and in fact, I have been thinking a lot that I would like to undertake that as a project, especially for Canadian radio, kind of before people start totally disappearing or forgetting. I mean, there's there, I, I definitely have a sense of a number of folks who are making uh, radio art in, in the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s. And then, um, and then I started moving around so much that I wasn't as up on what people were doing in, in various, at various stations in Canada. And, you know, it's only in the last 10 years, I would say, that some stations have really taken to heart the idea of the deep archive. And, uh, and, and so now it is possible to search for shows and to look for shows from the past. And uh, I feel like one, one could cobble together this history more easily at the moment. But, um, you know, this is something that I, I'm involved with the Wave Farm, which is a um, transmission arts center based in... Um, in the Catskills in New York State. And one of the things we're trying to do there is to build up this transmission arts archive uh, that includes as a subset of it really radio broadcasts and, and thinking about radio art pieces. And we can't we can't replay all of those on, on our, in the archive. We can just write about them in some cases because either pieces are under under license restriction because they, they come from you know different sorts of radio uh, ecologies, you might say. And in other cases, it's like the, the piece no longer exists, but we can talk to the people about the piece. So it's it's a difficulty of trying to string together, like, what were people doing? Um, and especially for the Europeans, whenever I'm uh, in a context like in, in, in Germany, let's say, or, or uh, uh, other countries that have had pretty robust uh, uh, experimental radio scenes, um, in their national public radio system, like France, for instance, they're always really surprised that that North America, where we effectively don't have state radio, uh, and where people made everything for free, you know, because nobody, no volunteer on an independent station got paid for radio art. Uh, how on earth did did that happen here? Like, why why did so much radio art, especially, come out of Canada? And you know, my my explanation for that was well we licensed independent radio really early and and we were tied to and those stations had strong ties to artist run culture so in vancouver it's not just citr there's also co-op radio which is more famous for being the place where hildegard westerkamp and uh hank bull and patrick reddy and some other folks who were also associated either with uh you know the world soundscape project and armory schaefer or associated with the western front and and fluxus like those those shows were already rolling in the 80s um and so uh we had this we already had this possibility even in one city where there were two stations that were able to do a lot of experimentation and there was certainly some cross-pollination there with CITR kind of being more the noise locus and co-op being a bit more, um, uh, having a maybe a little more influence from the sort of composerly side of things. But you could also say that there was a big difference between East Coast and West Coast. So stations in, in uh, Montreal and Toronto that had a much larger reach earlier, they also had the scene that was tied to conceptual art and sound art. And again, 
you know, they, I feel like some artists from there were a bit better known in some circles, whereas Vancouver really came from a kind of scrappy place of noise. And so we, we didn't always cross over in the same scenes, even if we were, we were, we could all be uh, technically thought of as working in radio art. So it'd be really interesting, I think, to try to write up some of these histories from the North American perspective where, um, you know, there's, there was a lot of activity, but, um, but it, it it really would involve some sleuthing, I think, to track track folks down at this point. Yeah, I love that. I love that you're thinking about working on that. And I'm also curious about the the predecessors to all of that. And I, I saw you give an amazing presentation where you talked about the very very early history of radio art and transmission art. And, I'm, and we've been talking mostly about this more recent history from the 80s forward. But I'm wondering if you could take us back for a little bit to talk about these very early years and what you've learned in your research about the early days of radio art and transmission art. Well, it's interesting because uh, I feel like in the very early days, if we think of the 19, the late 1920s, so when, when the first sort of radio stations are licensed or there's, there's something that resembles a radio program that's officially being broadcast, um, then you have interesting examples like in Mexico City, the uh, Estudantistas, who were uh, a, a group of poets and literary, uh, sort of literary artists, um, definitely tied to a, a kind of early avant-garde they got their hands on the radio and and were thinking of it as a place to put forward this, these new forms of poetic expression. So not necessarily so much with music, more about um, you know what what we would now think of as sound poetry or uh, a kind of very free form poetry. Tell us their name again. Uh, the Estridentistas. Um, and then at the same time, we have uh, an avant-garde in, in Europe, uh, in various countries who don't have access to the radio, but are really excited about what the radio might do and, and what it might offer. And, and that viewpoint is very influenced by kind of which uh, national culture these artists are embedded in, in terms of what they're resisting or what they are... Um, amplifying. So, for instance, the Italian futurists famously wrote manifestos about radio and what it might be. Um, Marinetti writes La Radia together with uh, Pino Masnada, uh, which is a, 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 a manifesto often quoted for saying that, you know, the radio will be this this uh, this this a bit like it will offer this opportunity to, in a way, like transcend our bodies and move into a, a more cosmic relationship with vibrations, with with other other cosmic forces. Um, but I would also say that that manifesto begins with a fairly damning list of things that you know we have overcome. You know. Uh, we have overcome women, we have overcome, like, war is mankind's only hygiene, etc. Like, there's a lot of very distasteful, and frankly, racist ideas that are also hiding in that manifesto. And that's not usually the section that's quoted when people talk about La Radia, they usually stick to the more, you know, uh, exclamatory, sort of like ecstatic aspect of it. Um, But it is worth remembering that that those ideas at that time were sort of deeply about uh, uh, avant-garde excitement about the, the, the emergent forms of modernism that included uh, automobility, also included forms of warfare, it also included ideas of, of power and masculinity. So, um, 
you know, radio is seen as being sort of is circulating in there. And uh, whereas whereas the the Russian futurists, and specifically, I'm thinking of uh, Vladimir Klebnikov, who was a poet who never came anywhere near a radio station, died very early, actually, was still in his 20s, but wrote this really lovely piece called The Radio of the Future. And the radio of the future, he imagines that people will be able to read books wirelessly that are projected somehow on clouds. You know, I mean, now when we're sort of in our current age of the Internet, it's like, well, he had a lot of ideas that were not super far away from the sorts of, uh, you know, in a metaphorical sense from the structures that are part of our everyday now. But Klebnikov also had this idea that the radio should do something good for the collective and it should be about learning for the collective. And as a result, one would need to also protect the radio because it's incredibly powerful and you can't just let it loose for anyone to control. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's sort of an ongoing theme in many of these um, early writings is both this desire to to get access to the radio, which was denied in Europe. I mean, in the early days of radio, the, in North America, it was for-profit radio that is our origin. And in Europe, it is state radio. And and in Europe, it's because people, uh, uh, politicians and so on, powers that be, really were concerned that uh, uh, malign or malignant actors would want to uh, uh, use the radio for propaganda, would brainwash the population. And that was, frankly, also a worry in, in the United States. I mean, this is the foundation of communication studies, is the concern that uh, new forms of broadcast media will, will broadcast propaganda that will control the population in a populistic sense, and they will not have the common sense or the critical faculties to be able to kind of read that media. So it seems like a kind of familiar refrain at this moment. (laughs) But, of course, they also find out that people aren't as duped as you think. It has a lot more to do with what your neighbors have to say and what's being repeated around you and your surroundings and not only what you're getting from the media. Um, But these different forms of, of, of dispersal uh, really influence what who has access to the radio. So all of these artists who are writing in Europe, like in Italy and Russia, um, they don't have access to the radio necessarily. Um, it's not until after World War II, really, in in places like Britain, in um, like in England, in in France, uh, where you see the beginnings of these experimental studios, these like small. Uh, laboratories of folks working who also have the opportunity to experiment with equipment and kind of invent radiophonic instruments, you might say, like early electronic instruments. Um, so the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the um, uh, the GRM studio in, in, in Paris that's run by Pierre Schaeffer, who's a musique concrète uh, uh, composer, like these are spaces that become really important for the European scene, and they tie very closely to a, a kind of emerging avant-garde uh, conception of making work uh, in those countries. And, and here, uh, uh, it's not that there was an absence of that, it's entirely, it's just that it, it's, we just don't have a record of it because it wasn't being institutionally supported. So it's all about what people were doing on the fly. Um, you've, talked, you've talked a bit about, about women and women's voices, and it, I know that they were a big part of some of these radiophonic workshops too. So maybe, maybe tell us a bit about some of these women who were, you know, early 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 on really important to um, this practice. Right. Well, I mean, the, the great example is, of course, Delia Derbyshire, who was the uh, 
uh, the person who who composed the the Doctor Who theme, um, and also among other things. And what was so great about her practice is that she was very deeply working with real to real players. She would have all of these sounds that she had created, um, often through a sort of fully studio process of of recording the sounds of like you know knocking wood together or brushing a brush across a piece of metal or just you know different sorts of acoustic sounds she would record those onto tape and then manipulate the tape in a variety of ways to to quite you know quite radically transform those sounds and then you know she worked a lot with loops she would have like eight or nine of these uh, tape machines lined up and then would just synchronize her performance of these uh, these different sounds, you know, multi-tracking them onto uh, tape eventually. But in the, in the early days, just trying to synchronize uh, performing from the recorders according to a score in order to produce super interesting sounds. And, and I mean, I've I've seen. There's a great documentary about her, where they also speak to a, a number of of uh, experimental music artists and and kind of like alternative music artists of the 70s and 80s who who grew up listening to Delia Derbyshire's recordings and like her sort of in, incidental sound on BBC, and it completely led them into the music that they themselves would produce later. I have a question about her working her workplace conditions, like. Delia Derbyshire uh, was employed by the BBC to make really far out there art, and then they sometimes would use that in their more uh, like mainstream broadcasts. You know, Doctor Who. Uh, um, did it start on the radio? No. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Who on the radio is a radio play. Like people listen to radio plays; they don't have to be avant-garde listeners to understand it. And yet, her work goes into that and sort of uh, you know creates mainstream art out of this avant-garde uh was that the plan was that why she was hired by the bbc i think it just they they had a small group of people working together and she she had the opportunity to join that group of people and over time really uh evolved a style and i would say at the same time electroacoustic music is becoming more popular and so there's you know there's synergies there too but um I don't know. I mean, I, there is. Uh, I, I could tell you a scholar who studied the BBC Radio uh, Radiophonic Workshop in great detail who would be the person yeah. to speak with. Because I'm, I'm just wondering if, like, her artwork had uh, radio airtime uh, when it was it, weird, as opposed to when it was mainstream, and that there those two those two types of broadcasts. Um, you know, she was paid to do both. Yeah, assuming. I mean, she was, I, I think the great thing is that what she made, like she, she consistently made the kind of sounds that she made. And, and those were, in, as you say, they were incorporated into uh, just kind of everyday aspects of the radio, as well as um, uh, being part of like, you know, this science fiction radio play, Doctor Who. So uh, yeah, I forgot. I, that. I don't have the impression that she yeah. did a whole lot of stuff that was super boring. I think she mostly was was noodling around making interesting sounds. I forgot that when Doctor Who first aired, it would not have been a mainstream uh, radio product, but it would be extremely niche, just as niche, perhaps, as, you know, electronic synthesizer music. But there was also this interest in, like, what's the sound of the future? So, uh, you know, there's still a formalism to that kind of experimentation, and... Maybe in some ways it, it it seemed less risky than other kinds of experimentation. I don't know how long it took those same radio stations to appreciate like scratch DJing, for instance. So, you know, one one could definitely do some interesting research into that to think about like 
depending on who is doing the experimenting, who who is accepted sooner. You know, Delia Derbyshire's like as a woman was was an outlier in this, but she's also a white woman, and so you know she was still sort of inside of some of the conventions of of musical uh, music making and tonality and so on that were you know maybe maybe not as uh, uh, maybe not challenging in the same way that let's say the Beatles were or like other bands that were drawing on you know uh, uh, historically um, sort of black music form musical forms coming from the United States so I'm not enough of an expert in in the British radio and music scene to be able to unpack all of that but um, uh, but she's still a really interesting character, and um, and another person who who comes a little bit after her is Daphne Oram, who created a fantastic system uh, of of making electronic music that was based on visual notation. So um, her her uh, system she called Oramics, and um, and it's actually a, a kind of um, tabletop. Well, it, it forms like a whole sort of table sized machine. Uh, where she would be able to draw, like make sort of gestural drawings of different sorts of shapes, and then um, and then those would be sonified, so those would become the sound, in a way. So she would create visual marks on on this uh, transparent surface, and then light would read it in a way, and and create these these sounds that would um, you would then hear. And her machine is actually uh, often on display in the. Um, uh, in London in the Museum of Science. So um, I, I have s- spotted it there on occasion. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, you've talked a bit about radio studios as instruments, and, and now you're you're sort of getting into this area of, of folks who are also creating instruments that use transmission. <laughs> um, so maybe talk a little bit. I mean, I'm thinking about the theremin, for example. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that, too. Oh yeah, I mean the theremin and the owned Martineau are the two instruments that are that are definitively radiophonic instruments. So uh, Leon theremin, Lev theremin is um, uh, from uh, from Russia, and in the nineteen uh, early nineteen twenties, he debuts this new instrument that can be played without touching it. That uh, uh, I should also say he. Uh, he has a background as a cello player, which is, of course, a fretless instrument. So he's already someone who was used to finding a tone along a very smooth string. And right. uh, and he was someone who had been a radio um, uh, a radio operator during World War One. Mm. So uh, so he had that training of tuning in and listening. And if we're talking about radio operating in you know the nineteen teens. That's a world where there's a lot of unstable frequencies. Like you are, if you're listening for something, you are you are constantly listening to these these tones that swoop up and down, that are these sort of glissando tones. You know that kind of uh, uh, typical like sort of like spooky sound now because of the theremin, um, but that that you for, you can also hear if you're working with shortwave radio. Uh, so theremin figures out that he can create an instrument. He's actually meant to be working on other kinds of, of devices. He's trying to create a device that will uh, uh, be able to to um, uh, indicate if there's you know chemical changes in 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 a in a reaction and so on. Like he's he discovers by accident that he's making a musical instrument, and what it is is that it, there are two different um, small oscillators. And one of those is stable and one of those is movable. And uh, the proximity of a body part like the hand, for instance, to 
near the antenna, which might be a pitch antenna or could be a volume antenna, uh, will change the relationship of these two oscillators such that you have either um, you can go from a low tone if your hand is far away to a very high tone the closer your hand is to the antenna. And the same thing with the volume, the closer your hand is to the antenna, the, the quieter the sound is, and the further your hand is away, then it can become louder within the sort of field of influence of the device. So uh, so Theremin starts, uh, uh, he imagines that this instrument will replace the voice or the violin in the orchestra, and that it will allow people to play this sort of very early electronic instrument. Um, so he brings it to the United States to try to sell it, and... Uh, and he finds himself a muse in, in the form of Clara Rockmore, who is this young violin player who's excellent at violin playing, but also turns out to be a, like a super prodigy of the theremin. And so she's the one that you often see associated with these early theremin concerts. And the theremin was manufactured, I believe it's by RCA, like uh, as, as a, you know, a device in a cabinet. Uh, it kind of looked like a lectern with these this straight antenna coming up the top and then a kind of smaller antenna off the side, which would allow a person to to play by gesture. So it's this super interesting uh, instrument that uses this principle of, of, of radio technology and also uses the fact that the body has capacitance, is able to enter yeah. into the circuit with this radiophonic technology and, and have a kind of material effect that produces a sound. You can still buy theremins uh, from, you know, from Sweetwater Catalog this very day. They're still being made. He also made a theremin uh, that's less well-known that um, was for dancers to dance inside of. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, that's right. A dancer could be the also uh, making their own musical accompaniment by uh, with their with their body. The tricky thing with the theremin, of course, is that even it's though it's gestural, you would sort of imagine you'd have all this freedom. You don't have to make all of these small movements on on the strings of a violin or a cello. But in order to keep uh, your your sounds in tune, you have to incredibly restrict your physical gestures such yeah. that you make these micro moves with just parts of your fingers. In you order have to, to know how to control certain your tones. You have to control your breath in order mm -hmm. to manipulate your the micro movements of your hands. So it's actually it can be kind of hard to play the theremin if you want to produce tones like very musical kind of tones, um, and it and it does look a bit uh, strict because people don't move their bodies very much while they're playing it. Um, the Onde Martineau is, is actually built on the same principles um, invented by um, a French uh, a former um, radio operator who then, uh, also in the 1920s, found himself creating an instrument based on very similar principles to the theremin. But uh, Martineau was interested in having a little more control over the, the, the musicality of, 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 and the reliability of tones. So he created a kind of keyboard as a, as a measure so that you could sort of find your place along uh, uh, in your relationship to the instrument and, and be more certain that you were hitting a C when you wanted to hit a C. Uh, and there's also a kind of wire involved in that case, so it's not completely wireless. So, um, and there's a, a set of expression knobs so you can change the uh, uh, envelope of the sound. And finally, he also created a series of speakers that have different properties. So there's uh, a speaker that sort of looks like a lute with strings attached to the front or one that has a plate to make more sort of plate reverb. And basically these allow, all of these give you this instrument that acoustically, it's like an electronic instrument that also has these acoustic aspects to it that allow you to make like really quite fa fabulous sounds. And a so, friend's, 
Oh, uh, pardon me. Anna Fritz, you are assistant professor of film and digital media at the University of California in Santa Cruz. You're on Radio Survivor today talking about transmission arts and art on the radio and sound art. We have about uh, nine minutes left for the radio show before we begin our podcast. Um, I wonder if you could talk about how radio art has uh, one of the most unique things I think about uh, making art at a radio station as opposed to making art anywhere else is how it is in relation to the listener because of um, because of what a radio station is to its listeners. You know, it, it's just so different. I wonder if that's informed the history of of this art form over over the one century that radio has been around. I, I would say yes. I mean, in terms of radio art, when you're in a broadcast scenario where uh, you can't, as a as a person making it, you don't you don't necessarily see the listeners. You don't see all the situations in which listening is taking place. Um, nonetheless, you have to figure out how to communicate, um, how how to how to offer something. Um, but the way I sort of think of it is that in that case, the the circumstances of broadcast are very stable because usually you're part of a station that has a license. It has. Uh, you know, a reliable signal, people know where to find it on the dial, it's not moving around because we have FM stabilizers. So, um, so that's a fairly stable situation. What's unstable is you have no idea when people tune in or tune out or what else they're doing. But when I work with, uh, with radio transmission outside of the studio, so when I make installations or performances where I'm using lots of small transmitters and receivers, the radius of broadcast is very small, and so I can usually see everybody who could possibly pick up the signal. Um, so the circumstances of listening is are, are something that I share with the listeners. I, I can get to know them. I can walk over and talk to them. But but the instability there is about the, the kind of physical means of transmission. Um, because the signal is so small, it's affected by... Uh, other other stations being nearby, electrical fields, uh, people's bodies walking between the transmitter and a receiver, and so on. Um, so I, I really like that those are sort of different ways in which this instability manifests itself, but I do feel like it's an aspect, a kind of characteristic of radio, that there's always an instability somewhere in this circuit of, of relationship that takes place over distance. And, and Anna, maybe as we conclude, can you talk a bit about what's exciting you about transmission art and radio art in 2021 during this strange, unstable time that we're in? I mean, I think what's great is that so many people are interested in radio again. And I mean, I, I feel like I've been saying this for maybe 10 or 15 years, that there's there's only more interest in radio. Like more people in the United States want low power FM licenses, not even to do anything weird, just because they want to have community radio. You want to have radio that's more local. Um, at the same time, there is this boom internationally. And this is not just a sort of Western you know, a Euro, North American centric thing, but like really internationally, there are all of these projects that use radio as temporary platforms for artistic uh, activity and, and weaving radio into existing sound or media art or music festivals. So I can think of projects that take place in Scotland, like in Radiophrenia in Glasgow that happens now about every 18 months, or uh, Radio Tsunami in Chile, in Valparaiso, 
uh, which is part of a, uh, a sound art festival that happens every year. And this year during the pandemic, they went to a fully radio focused uh, broadcast model. Um, there's other projects that have been really long running, like Radio Sona in Ljubljana in Slovenia, where they're able to get a um, uh, from the government. They're able to get for very cheap um, a, a temporary frequency for 10 days just for artistic experimentation that covers the whole city of Ljubljana. Um also, there are projects like uh, Pinode in, uh, based out of Paris and, and Mulhouse in France, uh, which began as a completely dispersed sort of hacker-led um, uh, effort to make um, radio out of networks of very small transmitters. And they also now have brought that into an online platform where like lots and lots of different folks can stream simultaneously. And, uh, and that became the space that... Um, kind of housed this this large-scale uh, nation, international um, uh, collaboration that I was doing last year during the pandemic called the Kuch Collective, where uh, we were, you know, doing these telematic exchanges where we had 15 of us making radio together. Uh, but that that might not sound so remarkable, but when you're doing it all from home and you, you're not sitting with uh, radio studios that don't, you know, that, that are delay free, we were all dealing with very different le- levels of delay and ability to hear one another. And still we were able to, to perform live together, you know, fully improvised together, just based on kind of creating this listening ecology and just participating in it as, as a way to make the show. So so I feel very optimistic about the the future for radio. And, you know, in the last uh, five years, uh, a group of us have been also talking about, um, you know, we should we should hang on to FM for culture. So the reason I say that is, you know, in North America, FM is in no danger of going anywhere. But in Europe, there's no AM radio already. AM is already more or less off the air. And the idea is to move towards digital and satellite models for, for radio distribution. So as that's happening more and more, we were like, well, why don't we save the FM spectrum for culture? So meaning it's for artist use, for for cultural use. So, um, so we were we were using this as a kind of sub theme for with this uh, uh, radio art festival that I was one of the co curators of in 2016, uh, called Radio Revolten. So Radio Revolten, um, which was an international radio art festival in Halle in Germany. And uh, and our our kind of sub interest was FM for culture. Like maybe it should be a UNESCO uh, preserved heritage site. Like let's preserve the FM band for culture, so it can't just be kind of capriciously um, made defunct and then sold for data transfer or whatever else happens to defunct frequencies these days. Um, so I, I feel like that's that's really interesting to me that there is such a boom in making radio, but. The problem I think that persists is that people still think of radio as like a conduit for their content. And for me, radio is not just about content. Like radio is about making a relationship to something, even if it's temporary. Um, And so uh, uh, that can still be music or weather or whatever, but I don't think of it as just being like, we're sending this, 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 uh, content down the pipe to the listener, and if they've received the content, then all is good. It's like we're actually we're actually building up uh, relationships that are intermingled with other kinds of relationships that we have. You know that include you know our neighbors and our sort of political space and our you know our, our incidental meetings on the street and and so on. Yeah, I would I want to add to that that like I would say that what radio can be right now is a way for 
for us to relate to one another in a community that um, we're not selling anything to each other. We're not buying anything from each other. Uh, we're not renting. <laughs> we're not owning. We're we're creating something together um, in a space, in a collective space. And you know, the pandemic has has turned all of that into an individual room and an individual microphone. But hopefully, in the in the years that follow our pandemic, we br- we get to come back together and share spaces with one another, share radio stations, uh, create community that is um you know centered around whatever we do with these radio stations whether we talk into microphones to tell stories or whether we create sound art um i just that's that's what radio is for as far as i'm concerned and i also think that you know we 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 kind of get into this mode of um you know expecting that that a medium is supposed to radically transform our consciousness and our society, you know, the way that the early avant-garde thought it would. And instead it's like, why don't you think about what, what this, this medium could amplify or enhance or how it could tweak something that's already potentially present. So, um, you know, I, I feel like in the nineties we were really scrabbling for access. It was really hard to get access. And in the United States, there was a huge pirate radio boom because there was, it was very difficult to have a low power station legally. And so lots of people made low power stations illegally in response to the disappearance of community and local radio. But, um, uh, but the, what backfired is a little bit from that era, I would say, is that we were really focused on we need more senders. Everyone should be a sender. Everybody should be, you are the media, make the media, you should be the media. Well, now we kind of have that, you know, in terms of social media. Every damn person is airing their thought. But I think what we, we kind of forgot with that is the other sort of not not opposite, but but uh, uh like necessary counterpoint, which is actually everyone is a listener. Like we need to begin from the perspective of everyone is a listener. And one of the things I've written about a lot is the idea of like, what does radio, what is radio that listens and that is sharing its listening? So it's like, it's, it's like saying, uh, what did we choose to pay attention to? And what are we sharing in terms of what we think is important uh, around a quality of attention? Uh, so I'm I'm trying to hold on to that a lot lately. It's like, what is it to be in a, not just in a kind of transmission ecology that includes a lot of different stations and a lot of different kinds of two-way radio use and internet use and so on, but also how do I cultivate this quality of the listener as as the, the pinnacle, as the foremost element? I think that's a beautiful place to conclude. Anna Frizz, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor today. Thank you. That was... It was great to be here. Can I pick up one breadcrumb you left? I think you you have probably have a couple minutes, right? Oh yeah, sure. I can go. I can go a little bit longer. Yeah, you, you mentioned Tetsuo Kogawa. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. That's wonderful. So, um, well, why don't why don't you tell us tell us more about Tetsuo Kogawa and 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 why uh, his work ended up being influential? So Tetsuo Kagawa is a a media theorist uh, who in the 80s in in Japan uh, started building very small transmitters as a response to this this lack of access to radio that many people experience uh, in in most countries because, you know, it's it's considered something that the average person is not meant to do. You're not meant to start your own radio station. And so uh, Tetsuo was interested in the 
potential in places like Tokyo and Kyoto, where you had uh, you know people living in in very high density in apartment buildings, where a very small transmitter might not cover a lot of uh, physical space, but within that physical space, however small, there's still quite a lot of people. And also, he was interested in what kind of relations might evolve if we were making radio together, you know, in a, in a space of a uh, kind of cultural space that's quite reserved. So um, uh, he called his station Radio Home Run and uh, and started a kind of mini FM boom in the 80s where there were like quite a lot of people initially through his students and, and, and his, uh, you know, his colleagues um, of, of building these very small transmitters, just sort of one or two watts of FM, which, you know, maybe can cover... I don't know, in an ideal situation with an attuned antenna, maybe you could do part of a kilometer, I say, says the Canadian who doesn't know what that is in miles. Um, but, you know, it's not, a, it's not a very big area. Maybe you can do a, a city block in ideal circumstances. If, if there's a lot of concrete, maybe you can just do a few floors in your apartment building. But if that's 20 apartments, that's already kind of interesting. And so the other aspect is that he invited people to make radio together. So it wasn't just people listening each in their bubble to the radio. They were also invited to come over to the apartment where the station was and to hold radio parties. And so the idea of the radio party is that by making radio together, you are able to have a different kind of conversation than you would if you were just sitting around with a beer in your hand. Because there's a way of listening. There's a way of conversing, maybe. People also get inspired to... Uh, to maybe speak in ways they might not otherwise, they say things that are unusual, they take up topics that might might not be the topic you would just casually uh, discuss at a party otherwise. And um, uh, so Tetsuo uh, uh, also was in contact with folks like uh, um, some of the former members of Radio Alice from, from Italy, um, which in- also included various theorists like uh, Felix Guattari, um, uh, uh, Ivan Illich and others. So, he, you know, he he definitely had a certain amount of, um, I would say, kind of philosophical capital as well as, you know, just a, just a kind of cultural capital from that. So by the late 90s, when I was building a transmitter based on these plans, they had been adapted by Bobby Kosnick at the Western Front for Canadian um, sort of the parts that were available in Canada. And we, we were able in a workshop of a day to build the transmitter and then the next day to build the antenna. Um, and uh, and since then, I would say after the sort of early 2000s, Tetsuo kind of had like another heyday where he was touring constantly, uh, building, do, giving these transmitter workshops just all over the world and at different artist-run spaces. But also he himself began to be very critical of the idea of radio art. He was like, well, that's just more content. He wanted to really make like do make art with radio. So he started doing performances where he would build the transmitters potentially on stage as part of his show because mm-hmm. he could build them so quickly. And he would tune them all to the same frequency. And then we have radios that were also tuned to those frequencies. And he would start turning on these antennas and what happened or these transmitters. And what happens is that you get all sorts of crazy interference sounds. So it builds up like this potentially very noisy, very vital, really active kind of soundscape. And then he could also uh, shape that soundscape by moving them around and also using his hands. So he began to think of that as a kind of, I would say in a way it was a little bit like a very anarchic theremin because he was using his hand as the uh, main 
a sort of fundamental metric of 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 the space you know like it's it's like at the hand level the the area broadcast is a tabletop um but once it was amplified through speakers it turns into this like kind of spectacular sound world so uh so for for Tetsuo he really started seeing a big difference between uh art for radio and then for him radio art is manipulating frequencies and manipulating transmission directly and is not about sending any kind of signal over the broadcast uh it's about the the sounds of the relationships of the devices themselves hmm. it so- it sounds incredible do you have you been to one of those performances or have you heard what people have said, what audience reactions were? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've probably seen him do it about like 10 or 12 times. I've, I've seen him perform in, uh, in a number of contexts of uh, festivals, um, smaller, small or large. Um, I believe there are quite a few videos online of him doing this. In some cases, he builds AM radio transmitters. He's also done things where he puts them into glasses. He puts magnets into the into the glass with them and moves magnets around. Um, I mean, people are very excited by it when he, he comes to an experimental music festival because it's it's really interesting sound and it's kind of profound to watch him um, do this very simple task. It's uh, He's very focused. He really is thinking in a way as someone who's deeply listening. But but it, it it's for me, what was kind of mind blowing was this is the sound of what's happening. Like this isn't an interpretation. It's not the sonification of another action. This is actually what's happening. The reason I hear it is because these transmitters are competing for the same receiver. Like mm. they're, they're a signal. This receiver is receiving too much of the same signal from from uh from these transmitters and it's just he's just turned on the transfer transmitter he's not transmitting any carrier signal like there's nothing in the carrier signal but you know he goes from turning on the radio you hear static turns on one transmitter you hear the dead air of that transmitter like taking over you know the the the, like being the the main signal source there then he turns on the second one and then you start to hear more sounds the third one more sounds the fourth one the fifth one the sixth one like it gets very complicated and it's only about relationship and that's where i really understood okay radio is actually just about relationship over distance even if it's very small or if it's large right that's like kind of the only thing we could say everything else is like has to do with specific moments in culture and history and our need for communication to do certain things and our desire for telling stories, for instance, or not. But but radio, if we're going to say anything basic about it, it's just this acknowledgement of presence, of this interaction of presence and influence over these distances. I, I can imagine that as an audience member, I mean, now that you've described it, I've uh, put my I've I've made a, a fictional story where I am the audience member uh, you, that you're watching a radio the physical object of a radio um, be born in a weird way and that like you know I I could live my whole life as someone who even likes radio seeing the object of the radio be it the one in my car or the one you know wherever else radio is physically existing um, you know it's it could be very like upsettingly dull or commercial box. It could, it could, it you know. There's a whole lot of garbage that comes out of my radio today. There's a whole lot of garbage that came out of my radio 30 years ago. And to get to see an artist like make it be born right in front of you, like reminds you that um, that the box. It's not the box's fault that it's spewing that spewing garbage. It's the culture that 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 decided that the box was going to, you know, 
transmit mostly crap into our homes or lives and uh it's neat it's neat to 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 think about it that way that you know that we could build we could build our radios to transmit anything it doesn't have to all be crap yeah i love hearing about these you know seemingly radical uses for the radio and and that performance sounds just mind-blowing and entrancing yeah. When did uh, Tetsuo make this transition? I, I met him seventeen years ago. So, uh, so is it been since then? I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's since since probably around like 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I I think also what's interesting about this is that it reminds us, uh, you know, as you're saying, Eric, that. You know, the history of a medium isn't static. It's not as if we discovered it and it was lying around and this was its one use. I mean, the the phonograph is a great example of that because, you know, when Edison creates something that looks like an early phonograph, he thinks he's making a dictaphone. He has no idea that scratch DJing is coming. He has no idea that hip hop is on the way, you know, 80 years later, no clue. So he thinks it's just something that someone's going to record their their letters so that their secretary can transcribe it, you know, with all of what that entails. So um, so the same way that radio has has been framed in very specific ways. But I mean, even now, when we say the radio, most people think of broadcast radio that is usually a one-to-many form people aren't thinking about like two-way radio or security systems or walkie-talkies or radio telescopes or the wi-fi from my router to wirelessly to my laptop you know there's a ton of radio going on there's more radio than there ever was but it's taking a lot of different forms and those are a little bit more invisible to folks maybe because there's a kind of cultural idea that the radio is all about you know the sound of someone speaking into a a microphone which suddenly brings this intimate voice into this device that's in your home and uh and that that set of relations of like oh it sounds like it's right here because that voice is so close um you know that kind of uh that relationship dominates what what is radiophonic for at least for our culture for a long time and um, people who work in other fields have other experiences of it. But uh, this, this isn't the end of the world. This isn't the end of the, the story for radio. And, and, you know, I've also, in, in some works that I've made, like, for instance, The Joy Channel, which is a sort of futuristic science fiction play about radio 150 years in the future, where we propose that the radio might also be a, a, a broadcast for emotions and for um, uh, tele-empathy and that sort of thing. Um, Part of the reason we propose radio in the future, like in a very, you know, rearranged uh, geographic, uh, geographical and political kind of circumstance for North America, is that no matter what happens, radio is really cheap and easy to make. And you can make it out of garbage. Like you can salvage things in order to make a radio. Like it's easy. Tetsuo can make one in under 15 minutes. Like he can make a bunch of those little transmitters in no time as Mm. part of a show. It's not a 10 hour show. It's a 45 minute show. And he makes five transmitters to get started. So... You know, you can you can build a little transmitter really easily. Hmm. You can build a receiver with with no electronics. So, uh, so for that reason, I think radio has this kind of incredible durational potential. 
My thanks to our guest on Radio Survivor today, Anna Frizz. So wonderful to have you on. Look forward to having you on again in the near future. We can always, always talk about transmission arts and radio arts. I can't wait to do it again. I want to let you know that the show notes for today's episode where you can find links to all sorts of things is at radiosurvivor.com. Today's episode is number 293. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more about how you can support the project as we move forward into the second half of our first decade, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Radio Survivor is a podcast that you can hear wherever you get your time-shifted streaming radio that we've been calling podcasts now for what? A hundred years? Fifteen years? Don't ask me. It's one of those two choices. You can get your free time-shifted radio programming, also known as podcasts, on a number of apps supported by different corporations. The Apple podcast streaming app is on a lot of people's phones. The Google podcast app is on another chunk of the Earth's phones. Uh, You can also stream podcasts using Stitcher or Spotify or, I like, Overcast. Any of these podcast platforms will stream our show for you for free each week that we create it. We cover here on Radio Survivor the news of community radio, college radio, low power FM, as well as the history of radio and transmission, as well as the different uh, special things you can do with the medium when we talk about transmission arts and the history of the work that has gone into transmission arts. We are always available to communicate with you, our listeners. You can email us. The email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to hear from you. We respond to everyone's message uh, in good faith, and we look forward to your feedback as well as your show suggestion uh, ideas um, or any questions you might have. We have, in fact, uh, produced entire episodes of the radio program and podcast based on questions that have been emailed in from listening from the listener community. So go ahead and send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Well, on behalf of Jennifer Waits, who produced today's episode, and Paul Reese Mandel, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.